you can stay standing. We are studying Hebrews, and that's how the Hebrews did it, just so you'll know. Like, the rabbi sat and all the students stood. I think that makes sense. I don't know where we messed that up. Um, all right. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, in Hebrews chapter 3, which is where we are, so hopefully you looked ahead and uh, studied ahead, and um, you got to see what's coming up in Hebrews chapter 3. Um, if, if not, you can always cheat for next week and study Hebrews chapter 4, which, Lord willing, is where we will be. Um, and you'll notice Hebrews chapter 3, especially if you were here last week, Hebrews chapter 3 starts with the same word that Hebrews chapter 2 did. In fact, a number of the chapters in the book of Hebrews start this way, to the degree that, and for those who don't know this, when whoever wrote Hebrews wrote it, they didn't put chapters and verses in it. That's not in any of the Bible. None of the books of the Bible or letters or any of it were written with chapters and verses. They were just written. That was all added in much later for study purposes. So it sometimes confuses us. And I think sometimes we actually miss stuff because we just kind of arbitrarily, we stop where the chapter tells us to stop and we don't read through them. Most of the books, especially the letters, were intended to be read from beginning to ending without stopping. And, uh, and so if you've never done that, I recommend you taking any of the letters, especially in the New Testament, and reading them. Um, if this is new for you and that sounds tough, Third John's a good one to start with because it's really short. So that's a, it'll be a good one to start beginning to end. But even the book of Romans, for example, is intended to be read from beginning to ending without break. It all is connected and, and lines up and, and uh, references itself all through it, just like a letter would. So um, that's true of the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews as well. But these breaks, the word therefore is one of the things that apparently they use to decide when to put chapter breaks in because so many of the chapters in Hebrews begin therefore. And as we learned from, from Paul last week when he taught through chapter 2, um, if there's a therefore in Scripture, we always want to see what it's therefore. Isn't that so clever? Uh, they teach that in seminary, that line right there. That's pretty much all they teach. So the, um, totally kidding, but all preachers seem to know that line. So therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence, hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So here's one of the ideas here. So each of these therefore statements is going to create an action. Therefore, do something. Again, Paul referenced that last week, that chapter 1 has no action command, has no call to action. The first call to action begins in chapter 2. Therefore, listen. Chapter 3 begins, therefore, consider. Here we have um, the Hebrew, I mean, the, the Greek word N-O-U-S, um, nous, the mind, reasoning, thinking. It is, that's, the, that's the root of where we think, how we consider something. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, think about Jesus. Think about this. Now, it's, it's, it, you could probably preach an entire series on just the phrase, think about Jesus. Uh, that probably could be, and I'm sure there have been people who have done it throughout history. I've taught a whole series on just the phrase, think about Jesus, because how easily is Jesus crowded out of our thinking? 
Um, it's one of the funny things that, that um, I read out loud to Ginger at night most nights. We've been reading doing that for years and years now and have covered lots of material over the years. And we're reading one right now that's written by a Christian author, but it's kind of an action adventure, but by a Christian author. And so it's weird to be reading through an action adventure book and when people are in turmoil and trial and they're about to die and they're in great danger, some of them pray. Now what's strange about that is, of course, that's actually what normal people do in situations like that. I mean, real, normal, actual people, when they get caught up in a, in a shooting situation or a terrorist situation, a lot of them, that may be their only prayer in a long time, but they pray. But we've so, so shoved faith and God and Jesus out of anything that it's weird to us when people behave in a way that engages with God, even in a trauma. I mean, you go and watch some disaster movie and no one in the entire movie, unless they're cursing, will reference God at all. Is that at all plausible? I mean, if you were caught up in the end of the world disaster with an alien invasion and you're about to die, is, is that really the last thing on your lips is not to say, God help me? Isn't that even that prayer? Wouldn't that be normal? They say there's not many atheists in foxholes. And I would think that would be true in a zombie apocalypse as well. At that point, it's like, God, I need some help here, right? I think, but we've so removed God from our culture that it's odd to us. Now, when I'm reading a book out loud where someone's life is on the line and they stop and pray in that moment or say that they hope someone else is praying for them, when the truth is, I think that's very normal and common and what would really happen. But we so, we're so quick to, to kind of shove him out of our life that days go by, weeks can go by, and we realize... I've not talked to God in a long time. I've not considered Jesus in a long time. It's one of the scary things about being in leadership. It's why we say we want, people to, we want you to put people in leadership who are godly, mature believers. Not the strongest thinkers necessarily, although that's fine. Not the, the most successful, although that's fine. But people who don't trust in their own understanding, but look to the Lord instead. And that's, that is a tough thing because very, it is very easy. Um, it, and, and I will tell you, if you ever come by the counseling center um, at Aletheia, every one of my rooms has the word pray spelled out in blocks in all the rooms where the therapist can see it. Because the danger in hiring competent people is that we begin to trust in our competence. Um, that's true of the staff here as well. We have hyper-competent staff members here. Um, but that's the danger is that we become so confident in our own competence that, that we forget to think about Jesus. And God protect us from that. Um, and so he goes on, he or she, the author, and who probably, again, probably he, given that that's the, the way they refer to themselves, but was a faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful. Now at this point, listen, if, if, if you're a Hebrew audience, and this is for a Hebrew audience... Here we are in chapter 3, and the author references Moses, and your immediate thought should be, uh-uh. I mean, you can talk about angels. Don't start talking about Moses. I mean, it's a big deal. You don't mess with Moses. I mean, that's, he's kind of the, the, the pinnacle. King David, okay, you, I mean, we all adore King David. He was awesome. We know he had flaws. You can mess with David some, but stay away from Moses. He was the lawgiver. There's nothing there. And the author is already going to pick a fight with Moses. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. For us, as a Western audience, we read across that line. We're like, okay, so Moses. We got Jesus is better than angels. 
Jesus is better than Moses. Sure, why not? That is not how a Hebrew audience would have read this verse. This would have been fantastically offensive. Um, you don't go picking on, I mean, we know Jesus was important. Okay, we get that. Okay, we're understanding this idea that you say he was the Messiah. But more important than Moses, deserving of more glory than Moses, Moses who was described as the most humble man who ever lived. And now you're going to say, uh, Jesus has deserves more glory than him. How? The writer of Hebrews knows that this thought is going to be very difficult for people to wrap their brain around, so he goes immediately into making his case. For every house is built by somebody. So when we think of God, when we think of Jesus and who he is, the apostle, that just means the sent one, the messenger, again referencing probably back the argument so far, that he was the messenger. He was the high priest. Now the author has mentioned this. The author is going to spend a lot more time on this later, the idea of Jesus being a high priest. That's, that's significant. Think of it, faithful to God who appointed him. He was kind of like Moses, and here we go, not just in quantity of glory, but in quality of glory. The difference between a house and its builder, a two totally different levels of glory. Um, that's huge. Um, the difference between that is massive. So let me, let me show you a few. We're going to talk about this just for a second to help you understand this distinction. This, this is called the falling water house. It's beautiful, clearly. Pretty awesome. Then we have the Beth Shalom Synagogue. Pretty cool. Anybody heard of these? If you have a few architects in the room, they may. If, a few, the, the, if there's an architect, they'd be like, well, yeah. But most of the rest of us haven't. How about the Guggenheim Museum? Surely you've at least heard of, right? Some, you've heard the word Guggenheim, at least, right? You know, like, somehow that's connected to something artistic. That's all I know. Something, Guggen something, right? The Guggenheim Museum. Does anybody know who is the architect for these? You've probably heard Frank Lloyd Wright, right? Very good. So the glory of the house, as cool as the house is, is nothing compared to the glory of the builder, or in this case, at least the architect. I wasn't even sure where to go with that. Like, does the architect count as the builder? I don't, I don't know if they do, but in today's world, usually when we say this designer is who we go with. Okay, we can go with that. If you don't have any idea who any of those were or who Frank Lloyd Wright was, how about this? The Laurentian Library? That's a big sucker. Some of you thought that was Green Acres. It's actually the Laurentian Library. <laughs> then we have St. Peter's Basilica, right? Okay, so the builder here was, yeah, Michelangelo. You've probably heard of him. He's the one with the blue the, he's got the blue here, and he carries the two. No, that's, he's the yellow. Mikey's the yellow. Orange. There's not a yellow one. Whatever, John. Come on. There's not a yellow one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The orange one. Leo is the blue one, right? See, okay, my kids are in that gap. I used to know that really well. All right. Change. He's the orange turtle for a second hour. Orange turtle. All right. Um, okay. So in the case, and, and here's the thing, maybe in the case of our ignorance, we still would miss something like we might not know it. I looked up, for example, I had to look up that James Hoban designed the White House. I, I don't know who James Hoban was. But that's not a reflection of the lack of his glory. That's a reflection of my ignorance. I just don't know that. The people who should know that and who know how to glorify in that, I am sure do. There's a distinct difference between the house and its builder. You might say, that's incredible, but some part of your thinking immediately goes to, who did that? 
And the, and the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, you think Moses is awesome. But here's what you don't, maybe you don't get. As awesome as Moses is, all of the awesomeness of Moses still is, counts as part of God's glory. Because God is the one who put Moses in place. He's the one who saved him. He's the one who called him. He's the one who put him in power that he did. Like, so all of Moses' glory, as much as you would give him as the great lawgiver, as the most humble man who ever lived. But see, that's only, that whole of Moses' glory only represents a tiny piece of the whole of God's glory. So any glory that we have, God gets the actual credit for. This is a huge difference in the understanding that, that some people seem to get. And, and that's, this is, it is the breaking point for so many people to recognize that, that there truly is um, nothing that we can do on our own. It's that we, I've mentioned before the dangers of humanism is that, is that we can solve all our own problems, which is just amazingly delusional to me. We have been at it for a long time. We don't seem to be greatly improving things. We become more and more technologically advanced but, but our technology doesn't seem to be helping us solve all of our own problems. Our own issues seem to be greater than us, even as a whole race. Isn't it interesting, Psalm 127.1, and maybe the writer of Hebrews has this verse in mind. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This is not just talking about buildings, though certainly it would apply to buildings as well. Uh, but instead to say, unless anything we do is done by God, we are wasting our time. What a huge, healthy mindset for us. Every bit of it. So <clears throat> I think that's huge. And the idea that we are his house, that is a beautiful concept. The idea that we are God's house. Um, this, is a, this is a cool, you, you may remember it. I've referenced this so many times um, early on with the opportunity to work with Pike, who's now the, the senior pastor just at First Baptist downtown. But um, when he was here and he and I got to work together, um, one of my favorite moments early on was him seeing him do a children's moment where he did that thing. And I know I've done, referenced this before probably in the last few weeks, but where he did the, with the children saying, you know, here's the church and here's the steeple, open it up, there's the people. And he just kind of got steely-eyed and said, this is the church. And that's the truth. This isn't God's house. Um, now, it's God's church, but the idea that God would somehow be limited, um, I've always thought that's really dangerous to say, no, no, this is God's house. That, the way that's been abused over the years, so, so, so don't use anything because you might wear it out because it's God's house, as if that would somehow be God's mindset. Like, I wouldn't want any of my stuff worn out. But instead to realize we are God's house. This is just a building if this church goes down and this becomes a, a shopping center, there's nothing sacred about that. It is the Holy Spirit in us that makes this place sacred, that makes this place special in what it is. It is our spirit through Jesus Christ that makes this supernatural. And which means, by the way, that your home is a sanctuary as well. That any place where Christians would gather, where two or three are gathered in his name, he is there, that then becomes a dwelling place, aside from the theological truth, of course, that God is everywhere, omnipresent. This is amazing that we are that. Look, look at this passage. So Peter builds on this, this idea of us all being connected. I'll reference that. As you come in him, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, talking about Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are stones that God uses to build his kingdom. This picture that's used all through Scripture, this connectedness, it's hard for us because Americans, especially as Texans and Southerners, we are, our lives aren't that interconnected most of the time, which is really a shame. Most of us don't even know the, name, we don't even know the names of the people who are our neighbors on every side, much less do we know what they're going through, which is, by the way, a travesty. We have got to turn that around. As the church, we have got to engage with those who God... We've got to assume that whoever God called to live near us that they were put there by God appointed for us to minister to them. We have to assume that, that we engage with them in some way. We are all connected, though, as believers. Even when we disagree about different things, even when we have different stances, whether it's preferential or pro progressional or process-oriented or, or whatever it is that we would recognize, those who follow Jesus Christ are all connected. We are all living stones stacked into a single building, the kingdom that he's building. We are all connected. This is called gestalt thinking. Um, in therapy, you learn about that in a number of different areas. As counseling is one of them. Others are ministry, building. A lot of these, they come together. Gestalt thinking means the whole is greater than merely the sum of the parts. And so when you're dealing with the leg family, if it's just, if you deal with me and then Ginger and then each of our kids, that's very different than all of us showing up at your restaurant at the same time, right? The chaos level is much greater than just the sum of the parts. You add each of us together versus all of us being there at once, totally different experience, I'm telling you. That's true of all kinds of stuff. People who come here should experience something different because we are all here than just if, if they met each of us in sequence, that that's, that's how this works. The, the whole is greater than merely the sum of the parts. A stack of bricks and a house are two different things. You just add together the parts. No, we have the same number of bricks. They're just laying on the ground. That's the same thing as a house? Well, of course not. That's ridiculous. So this, how we come together, this picture of a house, a body, that's another analogy used, that we're all interconnected. Here's what that means, by the way. Our power and our ministry are magnified. So it, it just adding up our dollars, for example, is very different than the whole of the dollars that we bring together to impact. There may be a few people here who could write a check for the whole amount of a children's building. Uh, maybe not. But all of us together can do something like that. The, the $150,000 that this church gives to ministries and missions outside, typically outside of this ministry directly, that's something that very few of us could go like, sure, I'll cover those, but we can all together do that. These are all just examples of how the whole is greater than merely the sum. The sum is the, 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 the way everything works together. No one can be separated. Our power and ministry are magnified. This also, by the way, means our sins impact everyone else. The idea that any person is an island is ridiculous in a Christian, if you're talking about in a body. You can't say like, well, you know, I mean, just a handful of cancer cells, that doesn't really matter, right? Many of us in the church are powerfully and painfully aware of that. Well, everything else seems to work. That one organ, you know, the liver, it's not working, but hey, that doesn't matter. I mean, what should the hand care about what's going on with the liver? That's not how this works. Hey, the, 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 church, is, the church is in great shape. I mean, one of the windows caves in, but that's what a, I mean, that's a tiny percentage of the whole building. What difference does that make on everything, right? Huge, because we're interconnected. 
That's how that works. Our marriages and our attitudes, they affect the whole. We even see it outside in the community. That's, that's part of what's going on around us. How many of you have, and you can use either, you think, think both directions. How many of you have seen someone outside of their normal ministry venue behave in such a way that makes you call into question their ministry? Right? Aren't you so brokenhearted when a Hollywood person gets caught on tape chewing out some camera guy? Like, gosh, but they're such a nice person. I mean, that's what the script tells them to be, apparently, because in real life, they're awful. And it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking to us. Or the opposite. The opposite, when you see someone behaving in such a way outside that you say, they have no idea I can see that, and yet I see that. When I teach young, young students or disciples who are going into ministry, I talk about, so, so doesn't it feel like it's horrible and judgmental that if I got up here and preached about this and talked about kindness and and how we should all be interconnected and that kind of stuff. And then we walk out of here and you see me snap at my wife or one of my kids. Which of course I'm not above. I hate the fact that I'm not above that. But it happens sometimes. And you would call into question my ministry. And all the young students are like, yeah, that's hard. I'm like, yeah, and it's appropriate. Of course you should call into question my ministry. If you see me behaving in such a way that goes against what I'm teaching. You confront me on that and say that's a problem, and hopefully I respond in a way that says, yeah, that's, we're all kind of messed up. But at the same time, of course that should be the case. This should be lived out in our lives. One of our sins impacts all the rest of us. Our neglect, that's how a house works, that's how a body works. Now here's what's wild. Now we're moving into the major theme of this passage. And this theme, the good news is this theme is going to run for many chapters. The writer of Hebrews, I think, is now about to discover, uncover, or make a point of a passage that this writer becomes enamored with. They love this. This is from Psalm 95, or Hebrews 3.7. Um, so Hebrews 3.7-11 through 11 says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I think the writer of Hebrews is struck by this. This is a powerful few little verses. I'm going to read it again. I want you to follow along carefully with this, because this is going to become a theme for the writer for a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This was a passage about God's people, the Hebrew people who this letter is written to. Even being God's people doesn't mean you might not miss out on God's gifts. If you harden your heart, you will miss out. This is a huge passage. This, this consequence, there is a cause and effect relationship in this passage that could not be more clear. You harden your heart. This is, this is an example. Many of you have faced the challenges of divorce for different reasons. And the challenges of divorce... Divorce is an awful thing. No one's naive. We know it happens. 
But I will tell you, my experience is there is always at least one hardened heart whenever there's a divorce. There's at least one, sometimes two. I loved a good, a good friend of mine who I had not seen in years, and we sat down and had coffee a, few, uh, a couple of months ago, I guess now, and, and I said, tell me about your life, man. I haven't seen you since, gosh, for 30 years almost. And he tells me about his life, and he tells me about the divorce that he had. And I said, how'd that divorce happen? And he was like, oh, well, I mean, I wasn't walking with Jesus. I was doing things my own way. I did whatever the heck I wanted to. Well, there you go. I mean, what do you say? Okay, well, there you are. You kind of got to almost enjoy the, uh, uh, the refreshing, honest attitude of, well, because I was messing up, that's why my marriage ended, because I was failing to be a good husband. And um, There's always at least one hardened heart. It may not have been yours, which is hard, it, that in itself is heartbreaking, but that's when people harden their heart, there are consequences for it, and it's heartbreaking. Being God's people does not protect you from the consequences of a hardened heart. Last week, Paul referenced a a very painful little passage from a book about a little girl eating rocks instead of eating a picnic. That is the little girl hardening her heart, neglecting this great salvation. If you do, it will cost you. That's how this works. The passage begins to express, it starts with urgency. Today. This day. Today. I won't go into much detail here, but I think it's a good thing to mention um, this is the example. I don't remember where I heard this a long time ago. It may have been right after 9-11, and you've heard me use this example. But to me, this is perfect fitting for the idea of urgency. Is If he teleported you back in time to 8 o'clock in the morning on September 11, 2001, to the 90th floor of the World Trade Center, what would be your attitude? And I hope it would be urgency, a sense of impending doom. Things are coming fast, and you'd be running from office to office, watching your watch, trying to remember exactly when things start happening and how much time it's going to take you. And you start telling people, we got to get out of the building. we got to get out of the building. You don't know this, but something bad's about to happen. And, and it would be crisis urgency as you're running from room to room. And, and again, by the way, some people, just as Jesus predicted, some people would say, oh, whatever, i got some phone calls to make, or I've got some emails to return, and... All that kind of stuff to say. This, some people would respond well. Some people would be like, oh, well, hey, I mean, if you say so, I mean, I can take a break now. It's not like it's going to cost me that much. I can do that. That's fine. And some people who knew you best, if they knew you were a rational person, would say, really? You're, you're saying, like, we're friends. You're saying we need to get out. We need to get out. And this, ver- this is today. Don't do it today. Don't do it. You're tempted to harden your heart. Don't do it. The writer of Hebrews is, is very serious about this. Don't do it. And then he offers insight into God's thinking, into his own judgments. How he could judge men the way he does. This is powerful. If you struggle with God judging uh, people the way, and I struggle with this too, that the idea of God judging people and sending them to hell forever, if that, by the way, that doesn't trouble you, I'm almost like question your mercy meter. Like, I feel like we should be a little troubled by that, the idea that God would do that, even though it's taught scripturally that, that God is going to condemn people. But listen to how he can judge. God judges this way. They always go astray in their heart. You see why human beings aren't allowed to judge? What kind of insight does God have here? What are some of the special levels of insight that God has in this verse? You can share. One, he can see their heart. He knows what's motivating them. He knows what's really going on. For us today, that's the gap between the visible church and the invisible church. 
We've, I'm sure we have church members who are not believers, are not Christ followers. They worship no one higher than themselves. They are the greatest God they know. They depend on themselves. I'm sure that's the case. Their heart is hardened. And God knows it. I may not. No one else may know, but God does. God knows our heart, the condition of our heart. That is not knowable to any other human. Sometimes it doesn't feel completely knowable to ourselves, right? But only God really knows this heart. He knows our heart. He sees the invisible. But there's even more here. What else, do, what else other insight does God have here? What's that? Okay, so, so they don't know it, right? They don't understand it. They don't know my ways. And there's a rejection here because this is connected to hardening and rebellion. They refuse to know my ways. Okay, good. One other one? Yeah, always. In fact, I think that's past, present, and future. He knows they're never going to do this. This is incredible when you understand judgment, as painful as it can be. This is called in theological terms, if you want to study this, middle knowledge. M-I-D-D-L-E. You have past knowledge, you have future knowledge, foreknowledge, and you have middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is the fact that God knows what would happen. God knows all possible futures, not just the one that's going to happen. God knows what would happen. God knows that if he gave these people more time, they still would rebel. You see this throughout Scripture numerous times. One of the best ones is when David is going to flee a city, and he calls on God, and he says, God, if I stay in this city, is Saul coming to get me? And if he comes against me, is he going to kill me? And, and God says, yes. Yes, he will. So David leaves. Why didn't God say, listen, it's irrelevant, David. You're going to leave. I mean, I've already looked into the future. You're going to leave. So who knows what would have happened if you had stayed. But what's going to happen is you're going to leave. So you might as well go and do that. No, God tells David a future that never happens. Yes, if you stay, this would happen. God knows all futures, all the possible futures, and he knows who will never soften their heart. That if he gives them any level of freedom at all, they will, they will always harden their heart. They will always rebel. That's, that's why he's the only one who's allowed to judge, because he's the only one who knows stuff like that. When you're dealing with kind of the neo-atheists, they will often talk about God as not being worthy of worship because of how harshly he judges and, and how foolishly he makes decisions. And I'm always, I'm always like, listen, you don't get it both ways. Either he's God or he's not. If he's God, then you've got to assume he knows what he's doing. Because by definition, God would know what he was doing. He would know how to judge. If he's not, then he's not God at all. It's not, I mean, if he doesn't know how to judge, and he doesn't know how to make calls like this, and he doesn't know who to, who to let into the kingdom and who not to let into the kingdom, well, then he's not God. He's just non-existent or some goofy thing that we've invented or whatever. But if there is a God, the fact that you don't agree with his judgment is founded in your ignorance, not his bad judgment. That's how this works. God knows the heart. He knows the future. He knows all possible futures. And he knows that they are going to harden their heart regardless. This is the way this works. I gave them freedom and they've hardened their heart. I gave them the option to harden their heart, and they hardened their heart. Um, in the, in the, the discussion I had recently with one of the atheists, um, that's what we kept coming back to, this conversation. God knows what he's talking about. So, and then we get the consequence. <clears throat> they shall not enter my rest. 
Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to use rest for a number of different things as a representative of God's blessings in general, including eternal. So there are cases in which, by neglecting such a great salvation, what that costs you is eternal rest. But it can cost you just the fulfillment of a promise or the fulfillment of a gift or another good gift in God's life. In, in fact, I could ask, and, and I think anyone, I would hope anyone who stopped and thought about it could raise their hands, how many of us would say there's been a moment in my life, there's been a time in your life when you've missed out on something good from God because of the, your own rebellious attitude? And, and the part of why everyone should be able to say, well, yeah, is because we've all sinned. And when we sinned, we're accepting the rocks to chew on rather than the picnic. That's what that means. So, yes, of course we have. Take care, brothers, verse 12. Lest there be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Again, that same concept of rebellion, of hardening hearts. An evil, unbelieving heart is probably just a synonym for hardened heart. But exhort one another every day so long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Referencing that word today, the urgency. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Just a note. Notice the writer of Hebrews cure for the hardening heart. What is the cure for it? How do we help one another? We encourage. We exhort. The word there doesn't just mean pat on the head. We challenge. We encourage. We love. We call out. And we walk alongside. That's what this means. That's how we engage. What's our natural temptation to do when people are in sin? Yeah, back away, right? I don't want anything to do with that. That's going to be a tough conversation, right? That's, that's like telling somebody that their fly is down or something. Like, how embarrassing for them, but I'm not going to say anything, right? We all need people who love us enough to tell us, you know what, this is a problem. Or, great job. Or, we love what we're seeing. Or, that's all plays in together. We need encouragement, and we need the kind of relationships where that can happen. We all do. If you ever want to study, maybe sometime we'll do a life study of King David. But King David, his life is broken into two parts. The first half where he essentially makes no obvious missteps. When does that change? When does David's life change? When Jonathan dies. You think, you think of Jonathan, his best friend, who challenges him, was still alive the day that David is sitting... The day when it says, and, and it's spring when kings go to war and David was sitting on his throne. That's meant to catch your attention. Wait a minute. I thought kings were supposed to be at war. But David, but David sent his men to war, but he's still sitting back at home. That's the beginning of the chapter where he ends up with Bathsheba. Every time I read that first line, I'm like, no, don't. I, don't, I just want to skip, like skip, 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 skip. Okay, back to the good stuff. Like, I don't, I don't want to. David, don't. I'm like, that, I'm like that person in the horror movie. Don't walk into that room, right? I'm like, don't. Every time I read that, I, I, I think that way. Don't you think that if, that if Jonathan had been alive, Jonathan would have come strolling into David's throne and be like, what, what are you doing here? And if you've not read it, it's spring when kings go to war. Why are you sitting here? Get up. Your men are out fighting. This is not the kind of kingdom where the king sits back and this is the kind of kingdom where the king's leading the charge. Get out of that throne room and get... Don't you think that would have been Jonathan in his life? I do. David needed that. What he had was Joab, who was a mercenary instead of a friend. 
Exhort one another so long as it's called today. This word hardening, by the way, that we've been using, is, it comes from the same root word where we get, um, scler- it's the word sclerosis, essentially. Where we get arteriosclerosis, which is what? Hardening of the arteries, right? Or multiple sclerosis, which is the hardening of the nerves. That's the, those are, don't be hardened. The level of self-denial and delusion is impressive. It will just go away. No, it won't. We have to engage. No one is affected by my sin. That's a lie. It doesn't affect how I minister. That's a lie. The deceitfulness of sin, they're lies. Um, I won't, again, I won't go into detail with this, but Ginger, the man who married Ginger and I and did our premarital counseling and was a professor at a seminary and was writing books and was coming to speak at Pine Cove at family camp the whole time was having an affair. And when it came out years and years later, it was just, it was so stunning. But when I called him and said, hey, obviously left a message because he didn't answer. Hey, obviously don't come to Pine Cove and speak at family camp on, quote, the memoirs of a family man, which was the title of the series he was going to teach. He told his son later, I don't understand why Chris won't let me come teach. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm going to say the same things I would have if I was still hardening of the soul. Next section will be on rest, which is encouraging. I'll finish this up. 3, 16 to 19 says, Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And did whom did he swear would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? Again, God's own people missed out on the great blessing that they had been waiting for, most of them for their entire lives. To be set free from slavery and yet from your own disbelief to be unable to enter the promised land. Continuing to build on this idea of neglect, neglect, neglecting this great salvation, hardening his heart. Rich Mullins, my favorite poet, once wrote in one of his songs, I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. That's us, so often. We'd rather fight God on something that we we're fighting for it, we don't really want it. I've used the example before of Emma, um, our four-year-old, and uh, one of my favorite moments in Emma's life so far from a pastor perspective, from a teaching moment, this one will come up many times over the years, was her sitting in the bathtub with her big brother, and she's got all of the toys wrapped up in her arms such that she can't play with them. Like she keeps trying to pick up another one and it keeps falling, and then she has to grab it and it keeps falling, it keeps grabbing, and she keeps... She's hoarding all these toys, but she can't play with any of them because it's more important to her that her brother can't get one of them than that she can play with any of them. That is a hardened little heart right there. But it's amazing how often I'll ask teenagers and even adults, hey, if you got something good, how would you feel about it? I'd be excited for free. Hey, kid, what if I gave you five bucks right now? How would you feel about it? That'd be awesome. Really? That'd be awesome? Yeah, that'd be great. What if I give your brother 10 bucks for no reason? How would you feel? Why did he get 10? That's not fair. Like, well, it's not fair. You got five. Just a second ago, your five was exciting. Why would your, the five be less exciting because someone who you allegedly love got 10? What if we had that mindset in the church, right? That we're just as excited when some other part of the house gets, a, gets a, an upgrade as the, our part of the house does. When one part of the body is healthy versus the other part, of, we get to embrace and enjoy being one body like that. That's how things are supposed to work. We can do that and live that out. In the end, the failure to believe. 
This is, this is the gospel presentation, the failure to believe. They failed to believe, and so they missed out. There's knowledge, and a lot of us have that. Gnosis, the Greek word. There is legis, meaning to agree. A lot of us have that. We're in church. Apparently, we agree on something. Then there is fides, faith, to trust in that thing. I know airplanes fly. I can even agree with you that the physics makes them fly. But until I'm willing to get on the plane, I don't have trust. Pick your favorite example and go with it. So if you've never taken that step of faith to trust in the one who has come to save us, greater than Moses, greater than angels, the one who made it all, I hope you'll take that opportunity today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be engaged in the work that you have done. Thank you for the opportunity to live a life worthy of the calling. Thank you that we can be brothers and sisters, one family, bricks in the same home, parts of the same body. Thank you for this opportunity. We ask it in your son's name. Amen.